What's going on, Asymmetry? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So many incredible conversations lately. And um, I've been trying to run down Ted Matson to do a podcast for a very long time. I would say one of the more influential teachers in North America, uh, one of the more highly sought after lecturers and demonstrators, uh, speakers, and contributors to the art form of bonsai throughout the United States, a mentor of mine, and um, and just a wonderful person now really elevating the level once again of the Huntington Library and Gardens bonsai collection. And Ted walks us through his narrative arc in bonsai and at the same time, the evolution of the Southern California bonsai scene that really did birth, I think, the next modernization of bonsai in North America in the 80s and uh, 90s. Anyways, unbelievable podcast. Unbelievable. Uh, could not be happier to sit and talk with Ted and uh, couldn't be prouder to share this with you. Enjoy. Hey, bud. How the heck are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. You're doing great. Oh, keeping, keeping busy. Real busy. You know, trees keep growing, so um, they don't take time off. No pandemic, uh, for, no pandemic for bonsai. Is that what you're saying? That's pretty much it. it, it, it my life in some ways didn't change much at all. Uh, it had to have changed in terms of a decrease in the workforce though, right? Because you're, yeah, that, that's been really tough. Um, the, one of the biggest challenges was, uh, uh, you know, we've got some real big pieces and, you know, we're, I, I need to put like teams of people on them, you know, to do repots and stuff like that. So that's, that's been kind of one of the biggest challenges is that some of our big, big things, um, just, uh, aren't, aren't getting fully attended to. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and as far as attendance being open, the public being present, et cetera, has, has the hunting, has the Huntington state available to the public through this whole thing? Well, when uh, we first uh, closed down, everything was shut down for um, uh, several months, uh, like six months. And then they started allowing the public. We, we did all kinds of preparation. They uh, initially set up one-way pathways. They close off some pathways. We, we looked for pinch points or gathering points, eliminated things like that, um, put up signage, sanitation stations, a whole bit. And then um, they, they allowed the public in on a limited reservation advanced booking basis. Um, so, um, and they timed all the initial appointments. So, you know, people would be spread out and only the gardens were open. So um, uh, for about a year, um, yeah, people have been able to come in and then starting this, this past summer, um, you know, opened up much more fully. And like now during the weekday, you don't really need a reservation. Um, uh, the weekends, they still want you to make an, an advanced reservation. Um, and, but yeah, uh, attendance is, is up. Some things are different. Uh, like the Huntington doesn't have their big weekend plant sales but now what they're doing is uh like for the month of october every wednesday they do an online plant sale and you can go and shop online and they they package different things together you know color packs succulent packs and this and that and then people come come in and and uh they're delivered out to the parking lot and now on a limited basis they can come and walk and shop through the nursery too so that you know it's 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 opening up in uh i think it was september 
late September, our galleries again started opening on a limited basis, like on the main Huntington Art Gallery. The main floor is open, but not the second floor. Um, so you can see Blue Boy. There's some exhibitions going on there. Um, readers are back um, in the library uh, again on with spacing. And if you're inside anywhere, you you got to wear a mask. That's an LA County thing. Uh, but outdoors, um, when I when I went back, we we closed in March of 2020, um, and um, Again, because of the bonsai, I, I went back uh, to water. I had an exhibition actually that just launched two days before we shut down and I had trees spread through the garden. So I had to go and water those as well. Um, but then um, we realized pretty soon that, uh, you know, between Ray and myself, we, we weren't going to be able to maintain. So I, I created a protocol uh, for working outside. So social distancing, uh, masks, um, you know, minimal contact, a lot of surface wiping, that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I had some pretty intrepid volunteers that, that came back and, and we had no incidents of, of, of people passing uh COVID or anything. So, so we, we were very successful and, um, uh, yeah. And, and, but I, I've been only able to have like a maximum of 10 people, uh, at any one time. And even that I wasn't really hitting 10. I was, I was getting like, you know, five people, six people, something like that, because in some cases, if I had the maximum of 10, if, if, if Ray Blassingham was, was there watering and working and I was there that, I only could bring eight new eight other people on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they so we governed that and we we you know we we took a lot of care of uh, trees in the courts. We took care of of, of trees that um, you know we could we could work on like a lot of deciduous trees where it's 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 a lot more directional pruning things like that. We were able to do a lot of that. Um, but um, like it's it's funny all our junipers in the last year and a half just just developed these massive extended crowns I mean just just volumes of foliage so one of the things we've had to do is just go and and really um, reduce um, uh, you know it, 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 they're so far extended out that uh, some of our trees are looking very skeletonized um, they're all budding they're all going to come back but we had no choice. It just, it, it just, it just got, you know, to the point where um, you just had to kind of start them from a, a new spot again. Hmm. So even some of our Californias, we, we've had that thin out. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's an interesting, it's an interesting thing when you're responsible for a significant number of trees and, and suddenly the context shifts. I know when I was in Japan, you know, I started as the youngest of six apprentices and then that was the middle of three and then there were two, and then there were one, and that all occurred over, gosh, a, uh, you know, maybe a nine-month period, where it went from six to one, <laughs> six to one, yeah. uh, and, and that was a that was a big that was a big deal. All you can do is sustain. All you can do is sustain. But that's that's really cool as an institution that the hunting, Huntington, you know, allowed you to develop your protocol and uh, and understood and valued the collection enough to really prioritize volunteers being able to maintain it. This is the thing about bonsai, is 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 yeah. you don't you don't ever get to stop. You really don't ever get to stop. Yeah. 
Yep. And you can't just, you just can't, you know, propagate a plant and start a new one. And I mean, you know, the values in that artwork itself. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I, um, through all this too, I, I trend got a new boss, uh, Jim Folsom retired That's right. at the end of last year. Right. And so, you know, in the midst of this too, we were kind of just, you know, stay the course and, and do as best as you can. And, um, uh, our new boss I think is going to be good. Um, she came from the Morton Arboretum, uh, in Illinois and, um, she's definitely, um, into sustainability, crop production, you know, macro, macro issues facing, uh, the, the, the planet that maybe the botanical world can do something about. But um, no, she, she recognizes the value of the, the bonsai collection here and is very supportive. Of, of you know what we need to do to maintain. Have you ever have you ever stepped back? I mean, I, I want to dig into your history in LA bonsai because uh, <coughs> because my my first awareness of you was from Harold Sasaki, who said who said that guy's that guy's really good, and um, and, and he's one of the only Caucasian people in LA to really kind of crack into the inner circle of like higher level professionals. Um, and I, I think that's interesting, but do you ever stop and look at, uh, where you are in your career at the head of what I would consider to be a very historically significant, profound bonsai collection at the Huntington library and gardens and think like, didn't you grow up in North Dakota? Yeah. Do you ever look back and just like, golly, that is a journey. That is an absolute journey. Yeah. It's, it, it, I can't believe that. I am where I am. And definitely the influences for being here started uh, as a little kid. So I grew up in this this prairie town, 10 miles from the Canadian border. Um, not many trees, um, uh, although I, I did grow up next to an area called the Turtle Mountains, which uh, was like a, it was a glacial moraine, like northern Minnesota or northern or Wisconsin. So we had a birch poplar forest uh, and lakes um, just a couple miles. It was an Indian reservation. But again, there you could get into what we call the bush. Well, the contrast to living on the prairie and 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 you go into the bush and all of a sudden the echoes, the sounds that out on the prairie would just be lost. It just felt like uh, such an intimate, interesting place. Um, and then um, in my little hometown, there was a guy who came back from the Second World War with a Japanese war bride. And uh, they had kids that I grew up with and uh, uh, going to their house, they had just enough imagery or artifacts from Japan, you know, like a, a painting or something. And, you know, from Northern North Dakota, that was like the most exotic place, uh, you know, I could imagine. And so there was always this fascination. Um, uh, my, my friend I grew up with, his name was Jim. He used to always, every once in a while, they, hey, we're going to Japan next year. You want to come with us? You know, and, and I, they didn't make it back that often. But again, it, that spark was always there. So uh, things Japanese uh, uh, were kind of implanted. Um, I don't know, too, I, I'm Finnish in background. And I think there's something about the simple Japanese aesthetic that also I'm that that the Finns are also kind of like that, you know, natural uh, 
woods, natural things, uh, uh, simplicity. And, and so there was, there was something in the aesthetic that, that kind of appealed to me um, on a, another fundamental level. And then um, as a kid, I, I played with clay. I sculpted. Um, I, I, I did figurines. I did, you know, people from my town. I did body parts, animals. I just, I just, I, I, my mom had a cabinet full of little clay figurines when I went off to college, uh, all which my nieces and nephews destroyed, you know, <laughs> but then, you know, I, so my influences that led me to, to bonsai, they, they all started back then growing up in farm community too, growing things. I mean, that, that's everybody had gardens, you know, people tended what fruit trees they could. I mean, there were, you know, plums and crab apples or you can do much more than that up in that cold country. But yeah, I was always around growing things. And, you know, up there too, people would have house plants. And, you know, that would just transform a home. So, so that kind of stuff always was, was boiling into me as a little kid. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, I look back and I just go, uh, how did I ever make it out of my small hometown? Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that you, the one thing that you had brought to my attention is, is, is being that far North, you farm when, when it's possible, but man, when winter comes, there's just an entire uh, entire transition of life that happens every year, where there's not a whole heck of a lot going on, and 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 the idle the idle idle mind can be a little bit dangerous, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I I always, from a little kid, was always interested in the creative process. Um, do you know doing creative stuff it just it just always felt like that that's where life is really lived i had a sense of that and um so yeah i i i kept myself busy with stuff like that you know as a kid i built models and you know uh, did you know my buddies and and i we we did stuff like that and um but but yeah i i i sculpting to me was was always very cool even going to college at one time i thought maybe uh majoring in fine arts with a sculptural focus but uh uh it just i, I didn't see a practicality in it um so and, and uh where did you end up going to school university of colorado in boulder oh that's right that's right doggone it. i've heard this i've i've heard it, different chunks of this story so i'm really excited uh i'm excited that you're laying it out for us and and when you went to when you went to boulder what did you major in well i actually went there on a, a naval rotc scholarship uh, each state uh, gets uh, uh, two service scholarships they get to award each year, uh, aside from the service academies. And so, um, yeah, between my junior and senior year, I got a form letter like, you know, thousands of kids did that you may be eligible for this. And I had no real prospects uh, to go to college, didn't, didn't have the money for it. or So, uh, yeah, future was kind of bleak in my little town. So, um I applied and uh, I, I kept on getting moved up to another level and, 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 uh, and finally, and I, I think there was uh, my brother-in-law, his father was a, a state uh, congressman. And I, I really think he had a lot to do with, with seeing, you know, I get awarded a scholarship, but basically I got a scholarship to pursue um, aeronautical engineering and kind of had the choice of schools anywhere in the country I wanted. But I had a cousin who um, uh, lived in Boulder and worked uh, in an administrative position at CU for a while and just 
describe the country and how beautiful it was, how beautiful the school was. And, and so they had a great engineering program. So um, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give that one a try. And, and I got accepted into there. And um, now this is a time during uh, the Vietnam War. And one of the reasons I also did that is because I didn't want to just get drafted. Um, my classes were being drafted. I didn't really want to go to Vietnam. Um, and um, so uh, I thought, well, if I if I was going in the service, I'd rather go into uh, like Navy or Air Force and I'd rather take an officer's course, you know, core if I could. And so um, it, it, it enabled me to, you know, get to school and, and there. But then um, uh, my draft number came out and it was really high. And it, I'm, my, my year was the last uh, actual draft. After that, they, they stopped and the war was winding down. And um, so I, I ended up coming back from uh, my first semester and realized I didn't need the scholarship. And um, by kind of my, my direction kind of turned. I also, I, I probably wasn't really prepared. My, I, I, I took a horrendous initial course load. I mean, I took physics, I took calculus, and I hadn't even had trigonometry in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I took uh, an English course, a psychology course, and a naval engineering course, and, and a, even an advisor said, well, she can do this, and while well, school was really easy for me in high school, so I said, sure, but I came, it came out on my uh, first semester on probation, and uh, the second semester, I went back, and I lived in a dorm uh, that was a little bit crazy, and, and one of the most brilliant people I ever knew in my life, uh, this guy George from um, a, 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 an engineering high school in Queens, New York, it was out in, in Colorado, and he was so bored with school. So he asked this football player if uh, he would allow him to rebuild his Norton 650 motorcycle in the spring semester. So the guy was kind of crazy and said, sure. So uh, they cleared out the dorm room and this is like across the hall and one over for me. And they brought, brought the motorcycle and a bunch of us, we spent our spring taking apart the motorcycle and we set up paint booths and saw, you know, we used the bathroom with bathtubs of gas to clean everything. And this guy, George, he just, he just sitting there watching his, he, he just watched this whole motorcycle being taken apart down to every little clip and pin and spring, clean, painted, and, and he put it all back together without writing a note. Just is brilliant. So that was, that was my spring. So what happened is I basically flunked out of school. And so, uh, I went, I went back to North Dakota, pretty humble, um, but realized if I stayed there, I'd, I'd probably be dead in a short amount of time, probably related to alcohol. I mean, that's, that's what happened in the kids in those small farm towns, a lot of drinking, you know, get on a farm, farm road and hit the ditch. And, you know, I, yeah. I pulled the kids out of the ditch when I was younger. And so I told my mom, I said, ah, I don't think I can, I can stay. So a couple of buddies uh, and myself took my mom's car, drove back down to Boulder and, um, uh, moved into a, a kind of a co-op house that I got involved with as a co-op frat house and, um, found a job at the, as a night bus boy at an IHOP. And, uh, those guys left me, drove my mom's car back and I just moved to Boulder. So I, I, 
I worked there. I uh, later in the in the when some of my uh, other guys from the house came back. One guy had been a roofer, so he got me a job as a. I, I worked a hot kettle on a on a roofing company for a, a year. Took correspondence courses. Got myself back in school. By that time, I became a resident of the state, and so um, I I went back to college and put myself through and earned uh, I think maybe the second degree in creative writing from the University of Colorado when I when I was there they implemented that some of the writers from the beat generation moved to Boulder and started uh, the Naropa Institute, uh, kind of an Eastern uh, think tank. And a number of the writers uh, uh, started a writing program at the university. And so I, I was one of the first applicants. And, and so, yeah, I, my degree is in creative writing. You know, not probably, yeah, just, I, you know, well, what it was is when I went back to school, since I was putting myself through school, I said, I, I, I'm going to, I, I want to see what I want to do. And I'd taken a, 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 I'd had a high school English teacher who talked the administration into one semester, allowing us to do like a, a creative writing. And I, I really loved it. And so um, I applied to that program. And I mean, during college too, my whole uh, interest in creativity, any course that had anything to do with 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 creativity, whether it was philosophy, uh, um, you know, literature, uh, uh, psychology, just sociology, anything to to help me understand how to how to under understand and be able to to trigger the creative force. I always thought, gosh, you know, if at if at any point you could just get into that flow moment, just just be so absorbed in that. The world disappears again. That that to me, you're you're living, and um, so again, the pursuit of that was always there. Um, so, um, man, discovering bonsai, just all those things, just just enveloped me. I mean, just all the all those influences that that I I, I remembered and sought and you know uh, shaped me. They they just they just came all together in this art form. The minute I started doing it, I knew I'd do it till the day I died. One of, one of the things that stands out to me about, because you've been a, obviously a significant mentor to me, and, and one, of the, one of the moments that really stands out to me between you and I was when we were talking about Dan Robinson's work, and you said, listen, you know, like it, love it, hate it, uh, you do have to acknowledge that if you're talking about doing bonsai as an art and not as a form of mimicry or perpetuation of... Uh, of a singular pursuit, which you might more further move into craft. If you're looking at bonsai as an art form, Dan or Dan Robinson is one of the true artists of North America. And that, that really, because you said, look at what he's doing. I mean, he's doing things nobody else is doing. He's pushing the envelope. He's, he, he, he's really exploring aesthetics. He's creating, um, controversial work. You know, people talked Mm -hmm. about it. it. It, it made it, um, it made an impression and it was, it was undeniably uh, necessitating of, uh, of another thought that, that really impacted me. It sounds like a lot of your ability. And I think this is a, an interesting aspect of bonsai is, is, is when does bonsai move into an art form? Uh, I think it's been the influence of people like you that have helped educate people like me, you know, the next generation or your students to be able to understand those thresholds and really see, see when the art form is actually being elevated, you know, and it's not to undermine the traditional approach in any way, shape or form, but to blaze your own trail and pursue your own aesthetic. And that's what I'm hearing in your, 
in your story too, because you just left a small town in North Dakota and, and got thrown into the big world, uh, at CU. Yeah. And that was like, Oh wow. Like a splash of cold bucket of water or something. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and then you got right back on the horse and you came back, you got it done. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, sounds, again, I do. It, it sounds very self-directed. <clears throat> I mean, just like a pretty indomitable spirit that you had coming out of high school. Um, you know, I've always seen it more. And and again, this is kind of looking back at one point in my life. And I, I, I kind of felt like a leaf on a stream that somehow when a current diverted, I was able to follow a, a, a current and it just led me into unexpected areas of my life. And they've, they've all, all been extremely rewarding, unexpected, again, taking me in directions I never thought I'd go. Um, But I felt very lucky that at each of those, you know, diversions that I was able to actually say, yeah, I kind of like to go this way. And maybe I didn't um, know exactly what that was going to be, but I, I kind of had a vision of where it could be. Like when I, I moved to Southern California uh, and I, I was already doing bonsai and, and there were a number of people who were traveling around the country, you know, teaching bonsai and, and they're talking about their experiences. And I remember consciously saying at one time, you know, uh, I'd really like to do that one day. And whether then I consciously took steps to, to get there, I just found myself taking the steps that got me there, you know, like finding good teachers, studying seriously with them, uh, taking advantage of opportunities to do programs and demonstrations and getting, you know, my, my speaking skills and presentation skills. And again, not, not that it was like, Oh, I'm good. I got to do this to get better and do that. It was like, it was so enjoyable, you know, the sharing of the information, the, the, you know, speaking to to people and, and especially in, you know, something like this, that's an elective, luxury in, in, as a hobby in some way. I mean, it, it is a non-essential thing people do. You, you have to make the conscious choice that I'm going to v- devote the time to this. I'm going to devote the money to this. So, you know, you, you have kind of a motivated audience, but then to see that motivation get sparked. And, uh, you know, that's what I started feeding off more is, is seeing people's excitement as they understood, you know, more about how to go about creating something that they had a vision of in their mind. And I saw my role um, serving, you know, uh, just people's ability to get better. Um, Everybody has valid vision on on design and you know again choices that's that's still subjective uh you and i would look at a tree and and probably see a lot of the same but there probably be tweaks that you know we do differently and um there's a lot of ways to skin the cat but but to give people the tools and the resources and you know kind of the faculties uh to be able to achieve what they what they see in their mind's eye and what they're hoping to that that really is is you know, the richness of, of where I've ended up. Um, did, now, did you go to Southern California from Boulder then when you, so you, you graduated uh, no. creative writing degree and how did you get to Southern California and what took you there? Um, uh, buddy and myself, a couple of, took, uh, 
two years to just tr travel around the United States before settling down. And I had an opportunity to move to San Francisco and which uh, in our travels I visited and just said, yeah, I, I definitely want to live in, the, in that city, you know, for part of my life. And so um, got an opportunity to move, move there. And um, that's where I discovered bonsai. Uh, I had a girlfriend and um, she, uh, she was going to visit a, a, another girlfriend of hers up in Sausalito. Um, and so um, I told her, well, there's a, there's a, used to be upstart crow bookstores around and they had little coffee shops and they were really nice little, little bookstores. And so I said, there's a, there's a bookstore over there. Why don't you go drop me off? I'll, I'll, I'll go do some writing. Um, and, and I'll let you just have a go, have a good evening and then pick me up on the way home. So she did. And I'm in this bookstore and, it was kind of dark, atmospheric, but there was a spotlight of uh, George Hall's Bonsai for Americans on the cover. And there's a little, you know, juniper procumens or prostrata on the, you know, just a little ball of foliage on the top. And it, I consciously, I didn't know what I was looking at, but boy, I was just compelled to go and pick up that book. And um, the preface in the book just was just struck me. It was uh, bonsai is is a Japanese cultural art form. It's sculpting living plant trees that can be hundreds of years old, and it's just like boom, 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 boom. Sculpture. I mean, just all these things, just just in this one sentence, basically uh, captured it. So um, bought the book, and and in the back it gave a list of plants and kind of you know the, the typical how you transplant something. So I got in, I lived in a third floor flat. And so I, I got on a streetcar and went out to uh, way west uh, uh, San Francisco uh, to a place called Slope Gardens and, and went in and bought uh, a, a little Japanese quince that was listed in the book. Um, uh, and this was like February, something like that. And uh, a, a blue rectangular pot, a bag of sand and a bag of potting soil. And I took those home. And based on the instructions of the book, I took the, the, the quince apart and separated into two plants put one in the blue pot, put one back in uh, uh, the, the pot. And, and I had to get a couple pieces of, of two by four and a, and a sheet of plywood because on my third floor flat, we had a bathroom and then a water closet. And there was a, and there was a window well between them that went all the way down and exposed to the outside. I overlooked a parking lot. Well, I, I, I opened the windows and nailed the two uh, two by fours in the, in the plywood. And that was my first bonsai growing area. And then she had covered with plastic because the winds were just whipping through that window well off the parking lot. But, but yeah, eventually I outgrew that. I convinced the neighbors on the, on the floor below, they, their, their back door opened out onto the roof of a, 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 a five and dime store on the, on main street. And so they allowed me to put a table up on, on their uh, little area out there for, for part of my time too. Oh, nice. So, um, yeah, it, and the way I actually found the bonsai community is is so I I planted this tree and I was fascinated by it. In fact, one day I came home from work and it was in bloom and I didn't even recognize the, that there were buds on it. I mean, and, and just a just a deep red. I mean, it was really a good little quince and it's like that just killed me. And of course, then I killed that tree trying to get it to bloom again and again and again. Just picked it up. Um, I still have a piece of the, the, the other half of that, though. I kept that with me all these years. Unbelievable. But then um, in the paper, I saw a notice 
that in South San Francisco at a nursery, the Bonsai Society of San Francisco was going to have uh, just an all-day bonsai demonstration. So then I got up on the streetcar, went and sat there. And what they did is they had a table set up in the nursery and members of the club would just go through the nursery, pick up junipers. One guy picked up a bunch of maples and he did a little forest and they just did bonsai design. And I sat there the, the whole day and just was fascinated by this. And um, during the day they announced they were, they were an open club because in the Bay Area at the time, there were only two clubs you could walk in and join. Uh, they were all sensei-driven uh, clubs, so you had to be invited by the sensei. The sensei did the demos. They taught the workshops. You learned that sensei style. But uh, this Bonsai Society San Francisco was an open architecture, and so they just said, yeah, anybody interested in joining, we meet, you know, Tuesday night at the Hall of Flowers, you know, come on. And so I, I did, and... Um, there were a bunch of people from that event that showed up. And so uh, first meeting, John Boyce from, got up and said, hey, a lot of new folks here. Would you like a bonsai class? And a bunch of us said, sure, we raised our hands. So right away, he set up a six session bonsai class. He said, I'm gonna teach you the John Naka method. And, um, you know, we were holding sticks while the other person wired, you know, we trade, we, I mean, very basic stuff, but, oh man, it was exciting. And we each got a, you know, ended up taking home a juniper and a maple and I think uh, an elm or something like that, you know, and, um, uh, but it, and, but then at the time in San Francisco, there were other guys that were starting to, to break off and do workshops. And, and, and so that, you know, I started being able to get, you know, other instruction. And, and so it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a, a real good introduction to bonsai up there. Now, now, now help me understand this relationship when the, when the sensei format was kind of there, like you, the sensei had to invite you in. How were you even getting exposure to have the opportunity to be invited into a club like that? And did you, did you crack into those clubs or did those clubs eventually dissolve into more publicly accessible clubs? Well, the latter, no. it was the latter. Um, I, by the time I discovered bonsai, um, I've been in San Francisco for a year and it turns out that I, I ended up moving to Los Angeles, uh, after about a year in bonsai up there. Um, what it was is, um, I had gotten a job, um, uh, at the library at San Francisco State University. I just doing, you know, clerical work and stuff. I was trying to break into writing, um, but San Francisco at the time, uh, it just wasn't a market for for writing in, in a way. I mean, commercial markets were down in LA. So like as a freelancer, there was so many more opportunities. So my girlfriend at the time, she had moved down to LA to, to uh, participate in a public, public fellowship program. And so at that time, I kind of decided, you know, Maybe this would be a good chance to go down, see if I can support myself as a writer, um, uh, give myself like six to eight months. And if 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 I can't, I, I'd love to move back to the city. And at that point, I'll do whatever. Um, so um, uh, uh, I went down, uh, uh, found an apartment for us. Um, she was living with some other people and, and so packed up a 24 foot truck with all our stuff from the, our third floor flat, saved the last five feet for my trees that I had accumulated up here and um, drove down to Los Angeles and, and, and moved into Eagle Rock um, to a little place with a patio all back that, you know, that I could put my trees. And I was aware that 
there was a very active bonsai community down here. And unlike uh, the Bay Area, um, and again, at the, when I first started, uh, it was very competitive. If, if, you, if you were a student of one sensei, um, you did not uh, interact with another sensei. I mean, if, 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 if one sensei heard that you went to consult with or get advice or visit somebody else, you, you, they'd kick you out. They'd say, well, go study with this guy. You know, you know, you're, and so it was very rigid at the time. And like I saw, say, and you saw people get kicked out. I mean, that's a real thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it, yeah. Cause then they, they'd end up coming like to either Hillsborough or Bonsai Society, San Francisco a lot of times. I gotcha. So, gotcha. And God, that is so fat. That is so rigid. So, so, uh, incredibly, you know, traditional, but, but, but kind of cool though. You know, it's, I, I have to well, say it's a little, it's a little gangster that they started out that way. Think about it. This was you know, proprietary type knowledge, you know, the, 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 the Caucasians were, were really hungry to get, get this out of the Japanese American community. I, you know, like in the central Valley, um, which, you know, had a, even an earlier bonsai history, there, there, there were people that were, you know, seeking those farmers, you know, in the Stockton area and, you know, in those, in, in Fresno and stuff, because they, they were, they were doing bonsai on their own just privately. And it was very hard to break in. And, Again, culturally, like in Los Angeles, the major rift was between whether to teach it to Caucasians or whether to keep it as, as a purely a Japanese art. And, you know, that that created the Los Angeles Bonsai Society, which was purely Japanese. You spoke Japanese. It was only Japanese invited. Um, they, they eventually died out. And the California Bonsai Society, which, you know, John and, and a group of, of guys said, no, we, if we want this art to really thrive, we got to teach it to in English to, to Americans and yeah. to Caucasians and spread it. And so, uh, but, but yeah, eventually um, with aging of the old senseis, um, with uh, opportunities to learn, uh, you know, from more people, um, uh, new generations uh, kind of just just kind of got away from that that model. I experienced it uh, myself um, when I started being invited to travel. Um, pretty early on, I got invited to go up to Santa Rosa, and this was Masi Mizumi's club, and and I, I was one of like the very first out guest speakers, and and I got invited because I I you know done started my bonsai in the Bay Area, so I I knew a lot of those folks up there, and so like when I started you know getting some notoriety and traveling, and people saw my programs, you know, well if you're ever coming up to this part of the state, so. The Santa Rosa Redwood Empire Rebs invited me up, and so um, I'm I'm doing a, a getting ready for my program, and and uh, Moss comes in and he's sitting right in the front and a couple couple back, not in the front row, but so I get introduced and I I get up on stage and I'm getting ready and all of a sudden Moss and he's not a very big guy, you know, he's not even when he stood he wasn't much taller than the people seated, seated but he clearly stood up and he just quietly turned around and he scanned the audience and then he turned to me and he said you know this is my club i've been teaching this club for i, I can't remember how many years and and you're the first person besides me who's coming in here to to give a demonstration for for our club and there's this absolute dead silence i mean it's like oh man what's going to come here and, I'm thinking, and so i ended up saying i said well Moss." 
I said, I've been so fortunate to learn bonsai from many, many people, including you. So some of the stuff you're going to hear tonight is, is your material too, because I was fortunate to learn from you as well. So I'm just passing that along. Wow. And that was, that, that was enough. He, and, and I mean, we, we had a good relationship throughout that, but, but yeah, I think that was, that was okay. That it was like, okay, it's, it's, it's you, you're represented here too. Oh my gosh. That is, that, that is so intense. So much, so much pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Ted. Blazing, blazing new, new trails, man. That's badass. So, so how, so in terms of your own trees and your own bonsai process, you know, because like you, you do have, I mean, you are a very well-known professional that kind of was a part of the wave that created the model of how to be a bonsai professional as, as you were traveling and really embracing teaching and teaching. <laughs> like how was your bonsai journey in terms of, because the, it was the creativity that really drove you, your own trees, your own sort of process of growing as a bonsai artist. Um, where were you at at that point with with your own narrative arc? Um, when I when I first, especially moved to Southern California, um, there were there was so much material. I mean, there were so many nurseries. Every town had a mom and pop nursery, and they had prostratas and five gallon cans and San Jose. I mean, you could go into any nursery and could buy material that, that was workable. So I had a, I had a, I found a bonsai buddy. We were both single and we would, we would go out like to, to Simi Valley and Moore Park to all these big wholesale nurseries. And we would load up a pickup on a Saturday with just material. And I mean, we'd talk our way in because we'd be buying a lot, but we'd be, you know, like $1.99, one gallons and $3.99, five gallons. And I mean, just, and Sunday we'd get together and we would just work through those trees, just pour through them. So in the first few years that I was down here, I just, I just worked just volumes of stuff. And most of it went on the raffle table, you know, a few things, yeah, were, were basis for this and some got killed later and you know, all that stuff happens, but I kind of worked through, um, working in kind of a production mode. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and in that too, um, you kind of got less afraid of sticking, say, to classic forms. Um, you experiment a little bit more. So I think uh, when I really started uh, uh, traveling and doing that, I think I had a pretty confident uh, or a, a confidence in my ability to really see an, an elegant line in a tree mm -hmm. and, and to really... Uh, define where where the, the the masses and the negative spaces should go to to bring out that that quality so i think um the fact also that i was a writer um when i first especially moved to southern california it was wide open you could you could visit 10 clubs well maybe not 10 you could easily f visit five clubs a month and see like a Harry Harrow, see Ben Oki, see John, I mean, see really great uh, demonstrators. And, you know, and these guys, especially John, was an excellent lecturer. Um, some of the other guys that were some of John's first students also were really good at, at, at 
giving information. So I, I kind of got exposed to a style of teaching that ex, where people explained the whys behind they were doing things a lot and not so much, well, we've always just done them that way. And, and people like a, a Warren Hill who, you know, really kind of took a scientific approach to bonsai and, and, you know, just, just studied the horticulture of it. He was, he was the first person who really, that I knew just delved into the intricacies of horticulture and would call, uh, call somebody up at UC Davis and, and ask intricate questions about some biological process that he was trying to understand. So that gave me kind of, uh, again, a, a sense that if people understand why they're doing it and, and, and get more background behind that, they're much more effective in their decision-making. Mm -hmm. And with that, their, their, their experience becomes more rewarding because they're able to do it. So again, helping people uh, see, see a line, see a design and um, providing the kind of information. I, again, I, I always had the, uh, like you, uh, not as good as you, but always was able to kind of uh, stream of consciousness, talk about stuff as I'm wiring a tree, you know, talk about uh, fertilizing or talk about some other aspect of growing that, you know, added to the narrative and added to the passing of knowledge, but without getting caught up in the detail of, well, I, I'm, this is, you know, I'm doing this with my hands now. Well, you can see that, you know, let, let's, let's, a fuller picture. So again, I, I, I always felt too, I never felt you could tell somebody uh, you're not ready for this yet. I never, I didn't know that. And, and so like, I was always willing to give information to people, maybe knowing that it wasn't, they weren't going to relate to it now, but somewhere down the line, they're going to see something. They're going to, they're going to do some process and that little thing is going to come back and go, oh, that's what Ted was talking about here. And, and the more I felt, too, that people heard that, the more it was there and available to them when they needed to draw it out. So I've always, you know, spoken almost continuously while I worked. And that, you know, for a lot of guys, they'd come up and they'd like get into wiring and all of a sudden it'd be silence. So um, I, I, I guess I gave some entertainment factor as well. Mm. So there was some of those things that kind of, yeah, I gave, I gave a good show. I gave good information. Um, I made people feel like, wow, I, I'm, I'm walking away with something that I can really put to use here. And so um, I, I would get invited back. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it just, it was kind of a combination of, of, of style and that. Um, That's interesting. It's interesting to hear what you're saying about the teaching style at that point in LA, what, you know, like, uh, Mr. Kimura had all of these images from all the trips he'd taken over the course of his career. And he had images from his first trip to Anaheim, which I think was in 1984, maybe. <laughs> yeah. When Mr. Kimura came down to Anaheim. Uh, and he had pictures of Harry Harrow's backyard and John Naka's backyard and some of some of those uh, Ben Oki's uh, backyard. And I was just like blown away, you know, because my exposure to the Southern California bonsai community was 2000 to 2004 while I was at school. Um, John Naka was near the end of his career. Ben and Harry were still going strong, but they, they you know, the, the, that mega moment that happened in Southern California bonsai, like those, 
that energy had kind of been put into the bonsai community it had expanded and and they were definitely that that generation of teacher was tapering down right so i i just had no idea the level of southern california bonsai at that time until i saw those images uh, from mr kimura i mean it was it was happening this was a this was almost a bonsai movement this was really I, I think what we know of as the bonsai community today is still largely a product of that moment in Southern California bonsai history. Yeah, you know, there were many clubs, there were many shows, uh, you know, there were a couple of Azalea clubs, uh, you know, you'd have May shows, June shows for sales. I mean, yeah, bonsai was really widely practiced and a um, lot of nurseries, again, that the, there were always good resources here. So, um, uh, and then... You know, John really set the bar, um, but I also have to say, it, it, you can still see in Southern California, uh, there were, in the in the movement to teach uh, uh, bonsai to Westerners, there actually were there a, a little bit of two approaches. So there was the knock approach, which was a lot of the West side, main LA, but then there was the um, Frank Nagata, kind of school, which was a lot of the San Gabriel Valley, maybe encompassing even some of the San Fernando Valley. And what happened is John's group was much more a uh, serious artist, bonsai artist in the sense, like like I can go into someone's backyard and I can, I can tell who is their major influence to this day by their trees. John would always say, don't buy 10, $10 trees, buy $100 tree, you know, buy, don't buy so many, buy something of, of real quality. Whereas in, in this other school, and I, I was heavily influenced uh, because of my association with Melba Tucker, who was my, one of my early teachers on a long time teacher. Um, but in, uh, in this school, it was plant people. And nobody, you know, everybody propagated everything. You went in everybody's yard and there were liners of, of small little stuff. And you just had, you know, tons of stuff. <laughs> Excuse me. But you didn't have just a select number of premium bonsai. And so um, uh, that isn't to say like Melba didn't have really gorgeous bonsai. But again, she, she just was a, a plant person had flats and flats and flats of liner stock and she did psyches and i mean she she just she just grew a lot of stuff so the the yeah i mean the, the naka group it it was a much more serious focused group and and when you saw their trees they they were they were magnificent yeah. um you know like uh like i mentioned um Warren Hill too. Again, he, he had his trees were distinctive. Uh, Shig Nagatoshi's trees were distinctive. Now he was one of the Los Angeles group, whereas Roy, you know, part of California Bonsai Society. Um, but yeah, I, I remember you could go to shows and you and you, and you could recognize uh, the trees belonging to people by by their forms, by you know, just like John. Um, so many of John's trees have this little extra jog right at the base. It just, it comes up, it comes back, and then it, it kind of does its, it, it, it's like it face left goes right, and then it, it makes its major move. And there, there's just something that is really powerful. And if you look at like um, he, his, his uh, blue atlas, uh, his privet, there's many that have this 
he just had this eye for this really powerful little little jog at the base. Um, unfortunately, we ended up losing his big olive this year to Xylella fastidiosa. No, um, no. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know Xylella was in the United States. Is that's historically been an Italian problem, right? Yep, yep, and and uh, it's it's been. I think it's been with us for like a year or two, and I, I don't know if it came out of Mexico, but yeah, I think they 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 are, were experiencing some problems in the San Diego area a while back. But uh, we've we've lost a second tree to that, and and it was boy, John's tree was it was ugly when it was going and, and yeah, we had to dispose of it. That was, that was a killer. Uh, that was a one to call the, the grandkids and have to tell them that, but they were very understanding. I mean, you know, stuff like, and, and there's nothing you can do about that. Once, you know, we, I tried to get ahead of it. Um, luckily, you know, I've got people on staff here that helped me identify stuff like that too. So we knew what we were dealing with, but yeah, that was, that was crushing. That was un- crushing. Unbelievable. How, how does Xylella spread? Um, it's a bacteria, so the sharpshooter. Um, so it, it's related to the uh, same uh, disease uh, uh, in grapes, you know, oh. the sharp. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and we have glassy wing sharpshooters and, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's very difficult to, to control. Yikes. And, and so, so did you six to eight months, <clears throat> I'm backtracking now, six to eight months to see if you could swing it as a writer what happened? Oh, um, well, um, I, I, I got some freelance work. Uh, some of my first work was, um, the vanity publishing, you know, the, the, uh, uh, most important people of Glendale, you know, or the, you know, where they, they solicit business leaders and stuff uh, here, you know, get your biography for, you know, such and such in this book. And so I started writing biographies on, you know, local communities. And um, then I, 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 I was answering ads in the paper for freelance work. Um, But then ultimately I, 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 through a contact, uh, got a word of a, a job at then Security Pacific Bank as a technical writer in their their bank procedures area, and I went and applied, and doggone, my writing degree got me the job, and so for for five years, um, I I was a, a tech writer. Well, for a couple of years, I was a tech writer, but a um, uh, thing happened where. Um, this is at the beginning of cash management uh, as a science, uh, a lot of electronic banking. Well, Security Pacific Bank was kind of an innovator at the time. There's actually a book out called Dead Bank Walking. Um, I wrote a lot of the products that were involved during the the, the take the loss of Security Pacific Bank. But um, a wholesale marketing uh, head came down and said, We've been trying to work with this ad agency, trying to get this uh, publication on on this cash management stuff. Uh, anybody here want to give it a shot? And I said, yeah, let me do it. So um, I went and interviewed a couple people and, and put this thing together and they liked it. So they started feeding me uh, wholesale marketing. So I started doing all the banks wholesale marketing. And again, these were these products were you know bank to bank, bank to business. And um, But then at, at one point I 
I love the writing, but in corporations, you get pulled away from what you like to do and you get stuck in management. I, I had people working under me and uh, said, nah. And so I, I, I left uh, to go freelance. And I, I hadn't made enough contacts and stuff. I, I walked away with some promised contracts. And, and so from 1985, I just, I just, I wrote. And what ended up happening is, um, uh, I did a lot of cold calling. At one time, I uh, the telephone company uh, sold a directory of businesses. And so I bought one of those and just called manufacturing companies and said, let me talk to your director of marketing and do you hire freelancers? And, you know, I, I yeah, I made a living for, for 30 years doing that. Ultimately, found found work with production companies. I, I worked with Honda and big companies. Um, I worked with entertainment companies. So, my, it, but what ultimately happened for all the, the 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 fun stuff I did as a writer, what it enabled me to do was work on my bonsai. Mm-hmm. So I'd be working at home, uh, and and one of my deals when I went freelance, I made a deal with Golden State Bonsai Federation that if they got me a a Mac. Mac computer, I would take over the editorship of Golden Statements. So they got me the computer. So that was my computer that I, I, I was able to do my business, my writing business on at first too. So um, I, I'd be working at home um, and I, I'd come up to cross and I'd have a writer's block. I just, I wasn't, wasn't getting past something. Well, I, I found myself, I'd get up and I'd go out and pinch trees or do a little trimming or and something. Well, I started finding that within a couple of minutes, whatever issue I was trying to resolve in my writing would just pop in my head. And usually I'd go back in and it would just like pour out of me and whatever message is just like, it was so clean and clear. So I just, I started realizing, gosh, I, I can do bonsai. I can take meetings during the day. I can wake up early in the morning or late at night when no phones are interrupting me and I can really crank out stuff and yeah, maybe I can work on trees during the day sometimes. And, you know, so, so I've had this life where I've, I've kind of been able to do both. And because I was a freelance writer, when I started getting invitations to travel, well, lo and behold, well, yeah, I, I can take a weekend and an extra day. I don't have to set up my meetings for there. And sometimes I, I take work along and work on the plane and, you know, and, and, and so I found myself being able to pursue both. And um, eventually I ended up, working pretty consistently for Honda. I got uh, hooked up with uh, the executive that ran the Latin and Caribbean region of the world. So for for many years, I I wrote exclusively for them. And that was a job that started in April, worked through the summer and would end up in a a big dealer meeting in a big city, uh, late September, October. So then I'd be done with that. So all October, November, December, I'd travel. And then in the spring, February, March, April, I'd travel. And, you know, in the winter, you know, uh, I couldn't go everywhere in the winter, but like I'd go to Arizona or warm weather places. So for for many years, I was doing this big Honda project half the year and and bonsai travel the other half. That's bad. That's that's incredible. That's incredible. And and you liked, you liked the thrill of traveling. I mean, even, uh, even, even uh, and you only I wouldn't say recently, but fairly recently stopped traveling. I mean, you traveled for a long time. Yeah, yeah. From um, it was, I mean, I started uh, traveling around California uh, in the mid 
mid late eighties when I started teaching classes. Cause um, you know, we'd start doing club demonstrations and then when the, the conventions, you know, they, they need people to do workshops and stuff. So they were tapping local towns. And, and so, you know, I got invited to do some of those. And so, yeah, it, there, it was actually a, a, a a CBS convention that uh, in the very early nineties that, that got me to travel kind of uh, more nationally. And what they did is they set up a little round robin competition. So on Friday, there were five of us. It was Ernie Quo, me, uh, Bob Kenosht, I think, uh, 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 Gucci and maybe Shigmia. Anyway, there were five of us on Friday, uh, morning, uh, we were brought up on stage, and there were five uh, junipers, nice, nice shimpaku, and five in one five gallon cans in front of us. We drew by lots, and we had like five minutes to examine the tree, and then we each had like ten minutes to fifteen minutes to explain to the audience what our design concept for that tree would be, and then we took the trees. And we took them into separate uh, breakout rooms and we started working on them. So from about Friday, 11 o'clock, we, we started working. Well, we worked um, to the banquet that night, took a break for the banquet. And then a lot of guys uh, kind of went back to work or some guys were done. They got through their stuff pretty fast. Well, this was after uh, Mr. Kimura had, had visited in, in 84 and um I, I'll revisit that too because there's a funny story about the, the crowd there. But I remember how Kimura had cleaned his his trees, and so I took this shimpaku and I I tried to mimic him. I just, I just cleaned everything to the those those last little tufts, and then I wired. And after the banquet, I, I took my tree home because it was a it, the. Uh, Pasadena was the uh, home of the convention that particular year. So I packed up my tree and I went in my shop and I just, I just kept working and I just, I wired the tree completely out. I mean, just laid everything in place. I did gin work. I did stuff. I even potted the tree. So <laughs> what the idea was then the next day they were going to reveal these five trees. And so um, we brought them in, they had them covered and stuff. And so um, I remember Ernie had done a really aggressive, uh, taken 80% of the tree and, you know, done a one branch bonsai, very dramatic. And um, other guys had done some, you know, more traditional stuff. Well, when, when my tree was revealed, I, it looked like it came off the display. I mean, it just, it just was, it was just gorgeous. I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe that I actually produced that, but I was just, I mean, it was one of those in the moment, just inspired kind of things. And like when my tree was revealed, it was like this in the audience even. And and even Moraguchi came up to me after he says, oh boy, you taught me something today. Um, and, and that, I mean, that coming from him just blew me away. But right after that, um, a couple people went up to Jim Barrett and a couple guys and said, wow, who's this guy? Is, is that the kind of work he always does? And I, I got invitations like to uh, Atlanta and to North Carolina. Those, those were some of my first forays out of state. And, uh, and it was based on that one demonstration. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, th- that was uh, the first time I met Harry and, um, and we were at a convention. He said, if, if, you know, if you're going to study with somebody, you need to be studying with Ted. He, he, he do very good work. I mean, he was like very, you know, the, the amount of respect that the Japanese American bone tie practitioners had for you was, was impressive. And, and I do think that, uh, that you, you probably set a new trend that, that with that piece of work, that singular piece of work, which goes to show you the power of bonsai when you touch that next level, you know, like that's, that's, uh, and, and I want to circle back to, to what you wanted to talk about with Mr. Kimura. Cause I think he had that impact on a majority of the Western world. You know, I mean, he just, mm-hmm. you got a little, you got a little bit of the rub when Mr. Kimura came and shared his knowledge and artistry. Um, yeah. but what were you going to say about his Anaheim mm-hmm. visit? Um, well, so he, he was our headliner. And so the feature demonstration, it was at a dinner theater. So again, kind of tiered seating at, you know, tables and, and he was on a stage and really good lighting, you know, just dramatic, powerful lighting and a magnificent tree. I mean, gorgeous trunk, massive deadwood movement, slow, just, you know, massive amounts of foliage. And so, uh, and he had several hours to, to do the work. And so he did, you know, his deadwood work and stuff. And, and you know, everybody's admiring what he's doing. And then, and then he gets to a point where now he starts stripping out the foliage. Well, at this time, a lot of the, the traditional juniper work was more to cut back, you know, to tighten down. Well, what Mr. Kimura was doing, he was taking all these branches and stripping them out and just leaving a single tuft on the end. Well, there were tons of branches on the tree, but again, as he was stripping all these spindly little lines coming off this massive trunk, and I can tell you in the audience, people were looking around going, this guy doesn't know how to work junipers at all. I mean, there were murmurs, and that's what people were saying. You'd see people shaking, you know, looking at each other going, you know, it, it was, it, I mean, and he just, he just was steady and meticulous and he, and he wasn't talking a lot, you know, he, but he was just stripping this out. And then he started wiring and he's wiring and he's wiring. I mean, he's wiring fast, but there's just a million of these things and everybody's going, God, this, this just isn't going to work. You know, it just, it just, yeah, just the murmurs kind of kept getting louder. And then, so we got to like that last 45 minutes, you know, and now everybody's going, God, he's not even going to get done. It's, you know, there's, there's stuff going everywhere here. And so then he starts placing and arranging. And of course, every wire is the perfect weight and every branch as he places it, it stays exactly where. And so he starts laying these things down and he starts just, just bringing all these elements around this trunk and the way he places the foliage masses and the way he frames all these deadwood pieces. This, this tree just, again, when he was done, it, you could have put it on the exhibit and it would have been the most magnificent tree in the exhibit. And, and everybody was just, you know, and did you see that? Did, I mean, it just was, it was, and it transformed the way we looked at trees. Like I say, a couple of years later, when I saw that one tree, that, that was purely my inspiration is, wow, I, it, I bet if I did that to this, I could get this looking good too. Wow. So, 
Wow. Wow. I, 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 I marvel, I marvel at, uh, the opportunity to get to experience the evolution of bonsai on that scale, because that was a true, that was a true modernization. That was a true modernization of the art form. Mr. Kimura, that's, I don't think people understand And this. I mean, this happens and I think it's happening now faster than ever. Um, based on the rapid mobility of information that I think people forget what greatness looks like, you know, the, uh, whether you, whether you choose to entertain the Michael Jordan or LeBron James, who was better. I mean, like what Michael Jordan get, did for the game of basketball, LeBron, you know, it's not a comparison when you look at, yeah. you know, what Mr. Kimura did to the art of bonsai there, there is no rival to the influence that he had in the modernization and the reconceptualization of how you yeah. go about handling in and specifically the coniferous tree and inside of that his juniper work just just broke new ground artistically. Yeah, was, well, I remember one, one comment you made once that uh, um, you felt Mr. Kimura understood the interior space of a tree better than any, any other bonsai master. Yeah. That, and, and I've, I really took that to heart too. And I, that, yeah, that, that's something that, that guides me today is, is what's the inside space like? Yeah. Yeah. His, his setting of structure and, and it, it's interesting if you look at uh, his books, there's a, uh, you know, three publications that are in Japanese that are very hard to come by that are like the culmination of his earlier body of work, and then you see his evolution of his artistry, um, which is well documented sort of as, as you see the narrative arc of, of his groups of apprentices and his apprentices were direct reflections of those approaches. Much like you're saying, you could see the form of the trees and the different instructors or senseis, students throughout the, throughout even mm -hmm. Southern California. Like I, that really watching him take that narrative arc, um, and evolve because you're saying he wired the whole tree out and then started styling it. You know, Mr. Kimura made a transition in his bonsai practice guided largely by himself, where instead of wiring the whole thing out and then styling, he's, he's wiring and styling at the same time and creating, you know, efficiency in the process. Ah, okay. Yeah. That, that's, that's interesting from your perspective, how you saw that change. Now, maybe at the time, maybe that was a way to really create drama though, too. You know, he, he, might have, he might have in his mind that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm playing, I'm holding my cards until the very end here. Yeah, you could be right. I, because he was quite, and that's another thing is he was quite the showman and he, he, and he developed into, he developed into an incredible presenter. Even if it, I think the unfortunate thing about it is the success of any Japanese professionals presentation hinges largely on the translator. You know, yep. and that's a tough, that's a tough chasm to, 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 to close. I mean, I think when I came with Mr. Kimura to Golden State in Sacramento in 2006 and was the translator and assisted him, you know, the, 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 the direct accuracy of that translation being so intimately aware of Mr. Kimura, uh, as a, as an acting apprentice at that point in time for two years, I, I think that probably shed a lot of light on, um, the nuances of bonsai on that next level and yet created another, I, I think, step up in terms of the elevation of what he informed was possible, you know, and I'm not taking credit for that. I'm just saying I was fortunate to be in the dummy position of being with Mr. Kimura at the right time in his career, uh, as well as having Japanese, the Japanese language ability to, to, to just barely be able to do justice to what he was saying, you know? 
but enough of an artist to know what was important in what he was saying too, you know, cause yeah. yeah, no, that, that was, that was a great translation. I, I, yeah, I, I felt I got more out of that demonstration than, than dozens of others. Yeah. There's a diplomacy, a diplomacy to it, but I mean, just going back to you traveling and, and the, the biggest, I think commonality of what people say about your abilities as a presenter is that there's just so much valuable information you're able to teach as you're working. Um, but, but you're, but you're, you're speaking to points in, in organized fashions and you're delivering, uh, not a curriculum, but you're delivering obtainable information in the format that you were delivering it. That had the biggest impact on me as a presenter was really watching you present. Well, it, we do a process and, you know, again, this, this probably goes back to my, my experience as a technical writer. I was just going to ask you that. Know, How much you got to organize and be able to communicate that process. You know, when I, when I came to Southern California um, and, and visiting all these clubs, what I would do is whatever demonstration, I would write an article on the demonstration and give it to the club newsletter. And that, I mean, I, whatever lessons I was learning that just really locked them in. So, you know, to, to, to go through the process, like I was very privileged um, uh, to see Moss Ishii, you know, do his grafting. And so I wrote an article and kind of explained and as best I could and stuff. Well, one day I get a, a call from, from, and it's Mrs. Ishii on the phone and she goes, well, you know, Moss's language is, you know, a little tough sometimes, but we saw your article and you seem to really understand what he's doing. Would you mind, you know, he's got a program coming up. Would you mind speaking for him? So for a, a while I did that for him. Uh, uh, it, it got impractical after a while, but, but yeah, so I got, the privilege of standing right next to him, speaking to the audience, explaining what he's doing and, and just watching him right there, you know, over and over. And, and so again, to, to then teach it and, and explain that and even show it to people, well, you know, this is Masishi's technique for grafting and this and that, not that I do that a lot, but those are the kind of things that really, I think got me accelerated in my bonsai learning. So, um, and I've always guess I've had a, a a memory for trivia. So, you know, you, you, you just, you just start getting all this stuff built up in there. And like I say, start working on a tree. Well, yeah, you're wiring, but you know, there's, there's aspects of growing that tree that are probably really important that, you know, and, and so more, more focus on the horticulture as opposed to just the art of it, that, that I have to say too, is, was another major, major transition that happened in bonsai. Um, when I started out, it, you know, it was all about design and art, you know, you, you grew in crappy soils. You, I mean, you know, the science of growing trees really that, that evolved too, while I've been in it and the soil media we use, uh, um, the, the, the chemistry that just, just better understanding of technique, you know, all that, uh, uh, like I say, that there, there's, there's, been in the horticultural side, I think an equally uh, dramatic uh, 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 focus increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elevation up. It's yeah. The 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 indirect skill set that you amass over the course of life that creates you know this this eventual wonderful. I look at like say the skill sets that Randy Knight 
sort of accumulated as a hunter, as a landscaper, pond builder, and suddenly he's in the mountains moving big rock and collecting wonderful little trees, you know, because mm-hmm. of the, because of the way he grew up, the things that he knew, the, the, the pursuits that he has. It, it's interesting to see the amalgamation of your accumulated skill sets at this point, because now you're a curator. So like taking on the explanation of Masishi's grafting technique and, and representing, you know, or at least calling to the fact that there was uh, an individuality to the methodology or the technique and that that deserved credit and representation. And here you are a curator where you're really, um, and I, and I do consider, you know, I watched the way Aaron curates the Pacific Bonsai Museum, um, and I've had a lot of close proximity to the way that you uh, curate the the Huntington collection. And I think these are two of the best collections in the country. Um, you know, the ability to respect and, and maintain threads of the original DNA, the original artist intention, the time representation. This is what makes bonsai and art from the perspective of having that nuance of time be such a magical component because it has an aesthetic to it. It has a yeah. personality. It has a it has a system of of potentially beliefs in, in pl- applied to it, and that uh, is is curious. I have n- I had never put all that together because you know we talk about these things in bits and pieces, but it's fascinating to watch how you amass that information. Now, your original one of your major me- mentors, Melba Tucker, but there was a powerhouse of female bonsai practitioners in Southern California. If you talk about Maribel and Melba and, and, um, we just say Nina, my aunt was heavily involved. Um, uh, um, Lois Hutchinson, Lois and Bill Hutchinson, Bill passed away, um, this past year. Um, they retired out East. They're, they're both good, but boy, Lois, she, she, her, her bonsai bill was good, but in my opinion, Lois was, she was a step above her, yeah. her truth were beautiful. So yeah, we, we did try and, and honor, you know, uh, some, some ladies at some of our conventions, but you know, we were talking just the other day. Um, it's unfortunate how poorly some of uh, uh, our, our women bonsai pioneers and, and women artists are, are really underrepresented in our collections. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, we do have some things from Maribel or uh, I, I, Somebody is working on something from from Leela. We have nothing of Leela's, and and again, uh, there was a Georgia Flaherty uh, wave. I mean, yeah, there there were some very important uh, women influencers in in bonsai, and like I say, I, unfortunately, a lot of them are are underrepresented. Yeah, well, and you think about I, we podcasted with Kathy Shaner at the national show, and we're going to release that. Uh, later this year. I mean, it, 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 it exploded my mind. Um, Kathy and her journey to Japan as one of the, uh, and maybe I know other people had been, but she really did it, did it the full go, you know, like she was a f- true full blown apprentice. Um, I'm super excited for everybody to get to hear that because she, she, she just, she, she shared so much. She shared so much, but, but like one of the things that I've heard about Mary Bell and whatnot is, you know, the, that the instructors were, were very hard, equally hard, or maybe even harder on the, the female students in Southern California. I don't know if you had any experience with that, but it sounded, it sounded like it was like, you know, everybody was expected to be there and perform uh, and you said it was quite competitive, but you said, you know, John's students, especially their trees, you could tell. And a, a lot of really prominent female bonsai practitioners in Southern California were students of John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
it was interesting because, uh, yeah, like Maribel, uh, she kind of, it's funny. Um, and I don't know if this is just part of Japanese culture or, or, or exactly what, but if somebody in a, in a class, uh, say, uh, uh, Ben was kind of not doing something right. Well, John couldn't go and, and start hammering on Ben, you know, that it, it kind of bring him down to run. So he'd go over and start hammering on Maribel about, and Maribel might not have even been doing that, but she was kind of like the, the sounding board for John's frustration at, at I, I can't go and get on Ben for this, but Maribel, we shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. And, and you know, Ben would get the message, but yeah. And, and, and I think for a while, Maribel had a hard time with it, but I think at one point she understood and she actually was very loved by John. John, John was also very kind and generous. Uh, we were talking just this week, Cheryl Manning has been uh, uh, coming and working. And uh, so she's, she has been close to both of them and uh, she's been taking care of uh, a lot of Maribel's stuff, uh, trees and that. Um, and, and so, yeah, she relates a lot of things where John gave her this tree or gave her this pot. And so, you know, they, they, yeah, she was a beloved person at the same time, but she served the purpose of being the, the, the sounding board for but, frustration. You know, I had, uh, I, I, that's interesting to know that because in Japan that Mr. Kimura taught in the same way. Uh, and it was, and it was very complex, especially for me as an American, not understanding the nuances of, of that methodology of teaching more of an indirect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what I, what I came to recognize is the person that was being dealt that, um, that, reprimand of sorts. Yeah. If you chose to hear it like that, but clearly Maribel was able to recognize what it was. And that was, that was probably John investing in her. And yes, it was a correction of somebody else, but it was also directed towards a person that could both take it as well as use it, you know? Yeah. And, and consequently Maribel has had such a monumental impact. If you go as far as, you know, the, the, the national arboretum and, and that collection and the positive things that she's contributed to that as well as Southern California bonsai, that's, that's fascinating because beyond just bonsai practitioners, really that generation of John Naka students became bonsai ambassadors. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Yeah. And that, yeah. that spreading it around the world, Ben, ben Oki and Harry, but, but, uh, but just the, the whole group really, and, and you, yourself included, spread, spread a lot of knowledge uh, around the country. When, when did things start to change? Because you had this golden era in Southern California, and when did it change? When did, it, when, when did you start? When did you see it peak? When did you start to see like, oh, things are, things are not what they used to be? Um. Probably, uh, we started losing, you know, some of our, our, our old guard in the late nineties, you know, and then in, in this century, um, I, I'd have to say the biggest, um, biggest blow was John's loss. Um, there, you know, there were a couple people who were kind of maybe looked on as, as taking over his legacy that kind of when the time to step up to the plate came, they kind of just said, eh, uh, maybe not. And so I think 
Yeah, there was a void there. Uh, you know, like like John's study group, Nampukai. Well, we we would meet, but it was it it just kind of for what purpose? I mean, you know, he, he really was the glue. Um, we continued to hold, uh, you know, the exhibition uh, it, down in Nisei week until COVID hit. Well, actually we even rebranded that. Uh, Nampukai really was losing its purpose because one of the, the criteria was to be a John Naka student. Well, there, there just can't be anymore. So uh, we decided to, to formally end Nampukai, but then we, we rebranded uh, the exhibition, the John Naka Memorial Exhibition mm. at Nissan Week. And so every year, theoretically, we'll have that same exhibition, but it'll just, you know, be to, to keep his legacy and name alive. What, what, what made, what made, so was John Naka effectively to be a part of Nampukai, you know, you had to be a John Naka student. And when he passed away, uh, there, there really wasn't the glue that held it together. Was John actively and consistently critiquing people's work and continuing to teach and elevate all of your levels? Like, was John Naka at a level of bonsai practice where, where there really wasn't anybody else that was in his uh, stratosphere, or, or, or did it be, did he become less and less dominant as a teaching voice, but still the glue just from the personality and what he had contributed and students and respect holding it together. I, I, I'd never understood that. Um, he, you know, boy, his, his force of personality um, was, I mean, you know, he, he was one of those people that, just made everyone feel like you're, you're the most special person, you know, that, that, uh, and you, and you're, you're capable of so much and, and his artistry too. Again, his eye was incredible. He, he, he really, he, he, again, he, he just produced beautiful, beautiful trees. He, he, yeah, I mean, he, he, his artistry was so highly respected toward the end of, of, uh, Nampukai when he was still coming, but losing his physical capabilities. The one thing we always did is the host would pull out a tree and especially Moss Moriguchi and John would love to get in there and work on it. Well, toward the end, John was having a real hard time. And so people would just grab his hand and locate the scissors so he could make the snip and just guide him. Again, it was just pure uh, deference at that point. But the way he kind of led toward the end, it was, he got a little bit more like, you guys are getting lazy, you know, last, last show, you, you didn't, you, you know, you needed to do a better job. And so every once in a while, he would just, he would come and just light a fire and just, just rip us a new one as a club. You guys are getting lazy. Your work's getting sloppy. You know, the, you need to really dress it up. And, and after he passed, we kind of, same thing. All of a sudden we had a couple shows where people, you know, kind of weren't grooming trees. So we started saying too, you know, next year, Mel, Lindsay, and myself were looking at the trees and if not room, we'll tell you to take them home. You know, kind of, and, and we actually, we made um, uh, uh, Frank, uh, Frank Goya, Shigmia, um, Ben, and uh, Moriguchi, the, the old guard, <coughs> excuse me, for a couple of years, we asked them to be the quality control. Um, they were never as, as, as aggressive or as, you know, decisive as John, but, 
just out of deference, people stepped it up and started, you know, doing a little bit more grooming and prep. That's but, a, that's a, that's a fascinating culture that was created, uh, in, in Southern California then because so, so much happening out of deference. I don't know that that's possible at this point in time, like in the modern world. I think that was, a, that was a moment, you know? And yeah, again, I think with the internet and just the availability of information from, I mean, really good quality teachers, good quality artists. Um, I, yeah, I think it's, it is probably going to be hard for any one personality to dominate. Um, you know, I, I, I even wonder as we come out of this, this fragmented separated world we've been living in for the last, you know, near two years, um, uh, I, are people going to want to gather together? I mean, it, it is, is, I even kind of wonder about clubs and stuff. We, we recently had our, uh, the GSBF uh, rendezvous, the, uh, kind of a pared down uh, convention. It was well attended and, and enjoyed. Um, a lot of people, you could see, they really did like getting back together. But I kind of wonder if, if, again, on the local level, if you're going to see a club culture, uh, thrive like it once did. I, I'm, I'm wondering if people just are really out of the habit of on a monthly basis going out for an evening for a, a lecture or something like that. Yeah. 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 It's a whole new world, whole new world out there. Oh man. And, and so, uh, when did you, so, you know, you had this prolific career in writing. When did you decide to wrap up your writing career and why, why'd you stop? Well, um, Again, I'd gotten it in the late 90s. I, I'd started doing this regular project for Honda. Well, I, once we got into this century, again, I was doing so much bonsai travel that I was working exclusively for Honda. I'd pick up a little side job here or there. Well, in 2008, when the, the economy crashed, um, the, my executive that I worked with for like 10 years retired and they brought a different guy in. And so we worked with him for one year. And I say we, a production company uh, for which I did the writing, script writing, speech writing, you know, for video, product videos, all that stuff. Well, the new guy came in. We actually really saved him because uh, the old the old Honda staff wasn't a they just weren't in tune with him. His style was a little different. So he wasn't getting all the information. Well, when we came in and I was meeting with him, I mean, I was, I was kind of cluing him in the circumstances and situation that, that he was responsible for that he didn't really know about. So he was really appreciative What a successful meeting. But afterwards he said, you know, I, I like all you did, but he said, my style is not to have these big elaborate meetings. My style is actually to go out in the field and meet more directly with a distributor in Chile with a, you know, again, with someone in country. So basically he said, I don't think we're going to be doing these productions anymore. Well, I went back and looked at my portfolio, most of which dated to the, you know, eighties and nineties. And I mean, I was, I was during that, those years, I was, on the cutting edge of so many things. Again, I, I wrote about bank products, you know, a uh, guy and myself, uh, he, he lived in the Bay Area for about a year. I telecommuted up to Santa Clara and we, we worked on a joint venture between IMB, IBM and Rome. And so all the automated calling systems, robocalls, everything, 
I launched that with this other guy. We did all the writing for that entire that entire launch. And, and I wrote, I, I worked on the Mazda Miata for uh, about six months before it was introduced. And so all the copy introducing that car came from my, my computer. Um, and there was just, there were so many things. I worked with uh, Roland musical instruments when sampling and MIDI and all the electronic stuff came out. I, guitar synth, I, I wrote, I wrote, hundreds of product pieces for for Roland when they were at the top of their game um other leading manufacturers uh it just i i but when i looked at my stuff in 2008 it was so old and outdated i did <laughs> so like somebody's going to look at this and they're going to say you know that, that was 20 years ago or you know it, it's like it's, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I'm a fossil. And so it was kind of at the same time. And, and again, this is, this is how things kind of work out for me. And it, the 2008, 2009 was, was kind of struggling. Uh, and uh, it was about the time where there were some issues with some of the health of the trees here at the Huntington. Uh, ben was aging. He wasn't able to get to the, the the same level of work. The soils had really broken down, and so trees were, were just having a hard time. As I was traveling, I was hearing from a lot of folks around the country, you know, what's going on with the trees at Huntington? They, I've been there. They don't look good. They, you know, so I actually approached Jim Folsom at the time and said, gosh, you know, we're having some issues. I'm hearing about it. Um, how about if I'll, I'll step in, if, if Ben can't, I'll, I'll, I'll organize some repotting sessions and stuff like that. So they said, okay. And so we, I started doing that and, and, and Ben would come and participate. But um, uh, it was clear that he, at that point, he, he got to the point where he just wasn't able to do much work. So uh, kind of just by mutual uh, agreement, I, I talked to Jim Folsom and Dave McLaren at the Huntington and they had been talking about maybe needing to replace Ben. And one day it was almost like we were talking to one another and I kind of said, well, you know, if you'd ever be looking for a replacement, I'd probably be interested. And about the same time they were saying, you know, we're looking for a replacement if you'd ever be interested. Right. And so it just was like, I just kind of, moved in and, and just kind of started assuming those uh, jobs. And first thing was organizing a five-year repotting program yeah. and not every tree. And, and I got so much support. I was, I'd get, I'd get 25, 30 people coming down to work and we'd, we'd pot 50 trees in a day. And I'm talking about some trees that were practically in concrete, some trees that just the, the, roots were dissolved by the mushy soils and stuff. So, you know, a lot of work to do that process, but uh, we got through it. We got health restored, um, remarkably didn't lose a lot. And then when you started getting involved and in really bringing some of the, the, the more dire cases back into uh, health with your experience and, and not only in health, but bringing them greater levels of artistry that, that really, that really got us going on the right track and, 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 I think really inspired all the people that worked here too, that they saw what was possible 
to to revive some of these trees. And so again, it, it, it yeah, that that was that that really got us a kickstart to to get everything going. That was such so, a that was such a pleasure. I think for me as a traveling bone type professional, my my curiosity is after the pandemic, you know, do do bonsai collections still exist are is the public going to get back out there and and continue to support and facilitate the perpetuation of these collections because <clears throat> and, and and every collection takes its it has its own narrative arc and takes its own its own direction but it, it it's exhilarating to get to work on these historical collections yep. and to to be another one of the hands that contributes to the history of these trees i mean that really the opportunities that that you provided at the huntington and and some of the other collections that i've had the pleasure of working with that's 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 the cat's meow for a bonsai professional as far as i'm concerned because it's not just yeah. There's there's a real pleasure of working in your own studio on your own work and and slipping into that flow state. But bonsai, the the magic of bonsai is the fact that it's a living piece of plant material. But it's it's the wonder of the age. I think that separates it on on a whole another level from any other plant related endeavor. And yeah. um, and and when you get the human tree collaboration in there, that's a, a a part of that age, and you get a time capsule of stories and and backyards and everything that contributes to the aesthetic of the tree. That's the good stuff, man. Now we're talking about you're talking about like um, fine culinary cuisine versus like a pretty decent restaurant versus a hamburger. You know, we're like we're like in the depths of of what makes bonsai rich. And so yeah. I, I, I hope, I hope as things continue to, you know, progress and hopefully progress in the right direction that, that collections continue to move in that direction. Cause that, that certainly is a pleasure to be a part of, or has been at least with my experiences working with, with you in the Huntington. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to think that it, it would be a Michelin star collection if they, if they did that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's also some really exciting things going on. Um, the Huntington has acquired a 350 year old uh, farmhouse. Uh, it was a, a prefecture's uh, uh, administrator's home um, and they're constructing it in the little uh, area right across the road from where the bonsai nursery is. I'm also about to get my whole bonsai nursery reworked. We're getting it resurfaced. I'm going to change some of the table heights, but we're, we're going to move our work area and redesign a whole area. So when this Japanese farmhouse opens up and people can walk through it, the bonsai work area, they'll have a view. And so oh. we'll make bonsai work a part of the daily experiences. People come through outstanding so in the future. So uh, yeah, really you know that that's going to create a whole new level of engagement that's like um watching a musician make music the seeing a bonsai tree yes there's like an experience of trying to take it in if if it's a tree that that taps into some sort of nostalgia or experience you're transported that's all that but seeing the process seeing the process of that for for the exposure and accessibility to that, that, that is, is wonderful. That is so exciting to hear. I, I feel like the, the Huntington is on the cutting edge of, of so many things. The, the, what, what goes on at that institution is, is truly mind, mind boggling. I mean, even as you're talking about plant sales and now sustainable crops and stuff like that, it's not just a, um, what, what was an estate has turned into something that, that is feeding 
the public positivity on several levels, uh, just really experiential accessibility to incredible information. Well, and you know, through COVID too, when we open to the public, again, the, the expressions of gratitude to have a place to go, um, you know, like my volunteers too, um, that have, you know, been with me through COVID, they all said too, you know, it, 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 it gave them uh, some normalcy, you know, some route, something to look forward to and go to and, 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 you know, really engage with a part of life that, you know, kind of saved their mental health. When, when we, you know, look at surveys and stuff, the bonsai collections are consistently among the favorite uh, reasons why people come to the Huntington. Um, and, you know, we're way off in a corner. It takes an effort to get there, but people make it. And, and you know, when we're working in the courts too, the expression is so much, oh, thank you. You do such good work. It's, it's, it's great to see the trees actually worked on. We appreciate seeing them so much. It's like, man, you just get just wave of wave of all of these good feelings. I mean, you can't help but just, just eat it up. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Uh, it's really, it, it really has been something to watch the collection come back. That transition, that's such a difficult transition to make uh, generationally with the practice of bonsai, um, and, and to have, you know, to have all the parties in the right place for the handing down of that curatorship and stuff. And and I feel like that's something that, that we're getting better at because it really wasn't an exercise muscle. The first generation of curators of the collections in North America, and obviously the more established collections have been through more, but you know, Ben, Ben was, uh, you know, he he kind of started that thing and 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 saw it through to the degree that he could, um, but that's a that's a, a muscle that has to be exercised. You know, the curatorship of bonsai is is like the curatorship of any other art collection, and and it's an important thing. Dave DeGroote and the Wirehauser, he did such a tremendous job, and he handed that off so beautifully to Aaron Packard. You know, mm-hmm. at the end, I think Dave really on several levels has has been a real steward of the the model of curatorship in North American well, collections. But look at then how Aaron has brought another skill set, another level of curator skill set and and doing more even with it. And and you know that that's where under understanding what curatorship is, you know, that earlier generation, you know, they were here maintaining a, a a, a, a group of a collection of trees they were managing it but you know curation it, it, you got you know providing programming exhibitions content you know the the one thing at the Huntington that that it I could I could be I could be a much bigger force of content driven information and exposure uh, like uh, we talk about we're, we're working on some things like uh, virtual bonsai tours I've got a volunteer that on a regular basis just goes to the courts and takes pictures of trees on display so we've been doing it so we have some some trees that are showing some different seasonal looks so at some point I'll, I'll do narrations for these we'll get them on a QR code so as people come through they can they can do like a, a tour or even if they're sitting at home, they can, you know, log in and, and, and do tours. Um, I'm doing more things with education. Uh, I, I, I did a, a 
program and we'll be doing more for the Braille Institute, trying to create tactile experiences for blind people to understand bonsai. And, and even by understanding bonsai, understanding big trees, yeah. you know, where they don't get a chance to sense what scale of, you know, what's, what's up above you can't reach. Well, let their hands go through a bonsai and wow, all of a sudden they'll, they'll see it, what a real tree is like too. So those kind of things, um, that's, that's where curatorship is, 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 you know, more. And, and I, I've really enjoyed and embraced that part of the job too, of, of creating content and, you know, giving, giving broader audiences more exposure to our art. Ted, you never cease to blows my, blow my mind. I've never, Oh my gosh, you just dropped such a nugget. Yeah, a lot, a, you know, giving gi- giving the opportunity for somebody who can't, who doesn't have the opportunity to see trees and use the miniaturized form to inform their understanding of this macro. That's, that is next level. Very, very cool. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. Right. I, I, uh, I've wanted to do this for a long time. And I, I think we even talked about it kind of sitting in the shed after a day of work uh, that I would like to podcast with you. It's taken us forever, but I'm so happy that we got to do it. And um, yeah. man, I just appreciate you. I miss you. You know, the pandemic came yeah, on. Same here. You. It's uh, I some of our long late, late night talks up at El Dorado. And, yeah. you know, we had some pretty good heart to hearts up there. You know, I do. I, I, I still tell the story. I brought my very first bonsai, which I had managed to keep alive till college, uh, till your, to your study group. And I remember, uh, you know, you're like, what do you want to do with this thing? And I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to clean it. I don't really, and he said, well, it's kind of just a, it's kind of just a, a bush. You kind of have to do something. I said, eh, I don't know, Ted, I don't know. you know, he <laughs> said, look, uh, either you're going to make it a bonsai or you're really wasting your time here. And you walked off and, and that moment catapulted me like a slingshot into what it meant to actually do bonsai uh, because I started cutting off branches and making things. I still have the tree in fact, but that was, that was, that was a a major turning point for me that, uh, that, that I can't thank you enough for. And, and uh, again, I continue to glean a lot from you. So um, well, good luck with everything and uh, keep me in the loop as things continue to progress because um, I I love what you're doing and anything we can do to contribute, I, I would absolutely jump at. Ah, oh, thanks. Proud to call you a former student. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to continue to call you a mentor, Ted, for sure. Um, tell Mar- tell Marsha hello for me. We'll do. And you guys take care, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Have a good. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Tom. Have a good. One. Bye. Bye.